This is Retail Retold, the story of how that store ended up in your neighborhood. I'm your host, Chris Ressa, and I invite you to join my conversation with some of the retail industry's biggest influencers. This podcast is brought to you by DLC Management. First, I'd like to thank one of our sponsors, Credit Intel. Knowing the financial health of retailers is crucial for the success of your retail-related business. That's what Credit Intel is for. Credit Intel analyzes the financial health of hundreds of publicly and privately held retailers in different sectors. With a subscription to Credit Intel, you have access to comprehensive analysis of retailers' financial condition and their expert analytics team. Visit creditintel.com for more information. Welcome everyone to Retail Retold. This is Chris Ressa. It's 6 a.m. I'm at the Newark Airport on my way to Charleston, South Carolina for the DLC Annual Leasing Summit. Pretty excited about it. It's going to be really productive. It's our annual sales meeting and hoping to get some real good quality time with the entire team who's typically scattered all over the country. And this is an opportunity where we're all in one place. On today's show, we have Melissa Gonzalez, the CEO and founder of the Lioness Group. I think you're going to find her fascinating. She brings some insights to the podcast we haven't had on here before, and she brings a perspective to retail that I think is really unique. I'm sure you will love it. But before we talk about that, I wanted to talk about a topic that's been around since the dawn of time, and that is making excuses. I think it's an appropriate time to talk about excuses because It's going into February and people just started making New Year's resolutions a month ago. And now is about the time when you start to see people's goals and resolutions tail off a bit. And one of the ways that you can make sure that that doesn't happen is to do something very simple yet challenging, which is act on your commitments and not on your feelings. I heard that quote from Brian Moran, the author of The 12-Week Year. And it was profound for me, right? Because if you act on your commitments and not on your feelings, you make zero excuses. It's very hard to do in the moment. It's easy to make an excuse. I had an opportunity to make an excuse on Monday of this week, and I'm glad I did. And I acted on my commitments, not on my feelings. I want to tell you about it to give you perspective of how easy it is to make an excuse on Monday. So I let me back up for a second. I have a great gym in my home, uh, in my garage. I've made a great gym and I love using it. I've been on a workout tear for the last decade and the, the 90 days leading up to the new year, I kind of fell off. First time from a workout perspective, I fell off as hard as I did and I needed to get back on track. So in the start to get on back on track, I've been running. I'm going to run a half marathon in the summer. And so I've been running. Well, on this Monday, I was going to run on the treadmill at the DLC gym or the gym in the office that DLC's at and not run on the, sh- on the road. So I got on my clothes, packed my gym bag and headed to work. I got there at about 6.30, go into the locker room, start to unpack my bags, and realize I did not have my running shoes. And so we've all been there. This was disappointing. But 
you know, I live 45 minutes from my office at 6.30 a.m. What could I do? I thought about it for a minute and I was so close to just saying, I'll work out later tonight when I get home. I have my own home gym or I will, you know, maybe at lunch I'll run to ESW and get a pair of sneakers. And I knew none of that would actually come to fruition. When I get home, I'm going to spend time with my family. When I, my schedule's jam packed, I'm not going to get out for lunch. And so I had to make a decision. Am I cutting this workout out? Maybe, to, you know, what I'll do is I was supposed to be off on Wednesday. Instead of being off on Wednesday, I'll run that day. But I wouldn't because I'm at, I'm going to Charleston, South Carolina at 6 a.m. So I don't think I'm going to have the opportunity. That planned rest day was on purpose. And so it was, it would have been easy to make an excuse and just pack it and say, I can't do it. I'm on my running shoes. So what did I do? I ran four miles on the treadmill, very slow pace, right? I didn't work out for 90 days. I'm not fast yet. I will get there, but I ran in my dress shoes on the treadmill, probably ruined the dress shoes. Don't care. Was not making an excuse. Was not, not running that morning. And so. I urge everyone here that sometimes it's easy to make excuse. And sometimes you just have to work out in your dress shoes. Act on your commitments, not on your feelings. I hope everyone enjoys the show. Thanks. Welcome to Retail Retold, everyone. Today we have Melissa Gonzalez. Melissa is the CEO of the Lioness Group. The Lioness Group are retail strategists and pop-up architects. Welcome to the show, Melissa. Thank you, thanks for having me. Well, you guys are in a really interesting space today. You're in the pop-up world. It's trendy, it's hot, it's growing. So why don't you tell us what the Lioness Group is up to these days? Sure. So I am the founder and CEO of the Lioness Group. I started the Lioness Group uh, 10 years ago um, with this serendipitous opportunity to experiment with our first pop-up. And it quickly uh, showed traction that there was interest in, in exploring a, this new, which now become mainstream uh, store format, and just really been passionate about the ever-changing consumer and helping brands and retailers and real estate developers continue to um, evolve with consumers evolving the way that they have. Awesome. That was a great summary. So you started in 2009. What was your background before 2009? Um, well, I, I, was, uh, I worked in institutional equity sales. Um, so I worked on Wall Street. Um, but I also was producing independent films and hosting uh, a show on BET called Latin Beat. So I always was kind of that uh, right and left brain pull. Um, and at some point, I just really wanted to pursue more creative endeavors. So that's when I left Wall Street at the beginning of 2009 and kind of left with an open mind of we'll see. So I experimented with a couple things and this one uh, showed traction. So decided to pursue it um, more holistically. And, you know, it evolved over the years. And as retail evolved, I made sure we were continuing to evolve with it. Wow. That's a really unique background. I get the good fortune to talk to many 
retail influencers, and most don't come from your background. So that's really cool. So since 2009, how many pop-ups, how many companies have you been involved with? Yeah, I think we lost count because on our website, we say more than 150 because I think that's when I stopped counting. But um, it's been it's been a lot. You know, we we have um, I mean, the fourth quarter of last year alone, we opened uh, five, six, seven, eight stores, I think, um, in the fourth quarter. And and the other thing is it's it, we've evolved over time. No more than that. I think 12 actually in the fourth quarter of last year. Wow. So we've we've evolved. Um, you know, we do a lot of pop ups, but we also um, you know, people, uh, brands and retailers of, of all sizes have kind of been attracted to working with us because of our nimble approach to retail. So sometimes that means pop-up and sometimes just rethinking store format. So um, one of our clients that falls outside of the pop-up realm would be Nordstrom. With Nordstrom Local, we work closely with them to open their first New York location in the Upper East Side. And so that's an example, too, of what you're seeing in the space of uh, mass brands and retailers saying, okay, let's let's look at our physical uh, store portfolio holistically and understanding that different markets serve different purposes and different store formats serve different purposes and um, working closely with brands and retailers in that aspect as well, taking a lot of learning kind of of what we've gotten from being in pop-up retail for so long. I am impressed, Melissa. I can't believe you, your group has only been around since 2009. Fascinating. I imagine a lot of your time is spent connecting with researching and finding digitally native brands and then trying to figure out what their brick and mortar strategy should be or should they try a pop-up or should they not? Is that right? Am I on the right track there? For sure. We have three buckets really in, in the spaces that we play and, and uh, digital natives are definitely our large portion of it. It would be digital natives. It would be these mass um, retailers and brands just looking to uh, think differently about physical retail and then real estate developers. So, um, but D2C has been a, a big part of it for many years, I would say really since 2014, uh, when we did the first pop-up for Jay Hilburn, which is a made to measure uh, menswear brand out of Dallas, you started to see digital natives saying, you know, when we get to a certain threshold of growth being online only, um, actually the cost of acquisition becomes even more expensive. So wanting to balance that out with a physical footprint. And then, you know, since they're not born in physical, they're born online. It's a different core competency. It's a different set of skills. It's a different approach to retail. It's a different operational strategy. Um, so a lot of the times we're kind of playing their adjunct retail team, you know, or head of retail, helping them learn where to test. We do everything from helping them evaluate site selection to um, not only what's the right location, but what's the right square footage, what's the right store format, is it going to have inventory, is it a shoppable showroom, um, we help them figure out operational strategy, everything from POS to how many staff to what does your staff schedule look like, and then we do the design um, of the space and oversee build out to really get them to doors open. And that's great because, you know, the purpose of pop up for them, a lot of time is serving the purpose of a prototype. Right. They're prototyping like what physical retail looks like. And based on those learnings, they may go to other cities um, or, you know, they're signing long term leases. And that's definitely been the trend that we've seen grow over the past two years. And is your group working the deal with the landlord? So we don't um, we don't try to be lawyers and we don't we don't sign any agreements, but we will provide guidance of where to open. Um, so we help them with that, you know, helping them understand what comps in the area are doing, sales per square foot, the right adjacencies, 
Um, so thinking from a more strategic approach, um, we'll sometimes give some guidance of just things to watch out for, um, or we'll help them evaluate things like um, if we're if we're comparing location A and B, you know, which one is in white box condition and white box has a lot of meetings to different people. Yeah, for um, sure. uh, and so based on their goals, like, you know, there's checking a lot of boxes, what's the right location, but then what's going to be the quickest to open, what's the budget going to be required. So that we're providing that sort of strategic guidance. Got it. That makes sense. Given everything that's going on, are you seeing a lot of competition into your business, into the the, the retail pop-up strategy business? And then I'm going to ask a follow-up now as well. What separates Melissa Gonzalez and the Lioness Group? Um, well, that's probably an opportune, uh, an opportune question right now. Um, so we definitely seen more competition over the years, right? When, when I first started 10 years ago, there was a handful and, but, and also the types of companies doing pop-ups. It was different and different purposes. Over the years, it's, it's definitely become more competitive and you see a lot of buckets. You see, um, experiential marketing companies doing it with brands. A lot of the times, though, the purpose of those pop-ups are more event-driven. They're shorter term. They're not really like, retail experiences as much as their marketing um and then you know there's there's um architecture firms who have kind of uh, dipped their toes a little bit more into the g2c space and helping brands open stores and where we've kind of carved out being a bit different is that holistic approach we're taking with brands that are going into physical for the first time to say okay let's look at this the ideation phase is a huge component of where we start and it's not just about, okay, what's my store going to look like or what's the story of the store, but it's all those elements of site selection and operational strategy um, and design. And so um, I think in that sense, you know, we've carved out a niche and it's been our initiative um, for all these years to, to continue to grow and differentiate yourself ourselves. So actually effective um, the, the beginning of this year, um, we are actually been... Um, We've merged with MG2, which is a global architecture firm. And so now we are actually the Lioness Group and MG2 company. And the reason why this further differentiates us is now we have a global architecture firm that we can, we can expand our resources and we can be able to say to our clients, we can work with you in those early phases of doing pop-up to test, you know, the viability of long-term leases. But now we can also help you with store rollouts and we have a whole architectural um, firm. Um, that's that we're a part of that can help with that. Congratulations. In a decade, that's some serious success. But you brought up two things that I think many people who listen to this podcast are wondering as you're sitting here today. And one of those things is when one of these brands opens up a pop-up, are they trying to make money, make a profit retailing goods in that brick and mortar store, or is it a branding play where they're looking for exposure and trying to connect with consumers? Sure. So it depends. Um, you know, a lot of the times when we have plenty of brands where what they consider success is earned media, you know, media impressions and um, amplification of brand. So usually those pop-ups are four days, maybe a week at most, and they're really marketing events. Um, when you're looking at the longer term ones, one month, three months, six months, and they do, they do, uh, want to see ROI. Um, in the shorter term ones, like a month to two or three months, they're happy with break even on average because 
if they did it properly, they're going to see the ancillary benefits of they acquired new customers. Maybe they didn't purchase in store, but they're going to purchase online in the next couple quarters. Um, you know, they they've they've spread the word. So a lot of them are understanding that. Um, the longer term ones, there's they they are more and more understanding the impact of the halo effect, and so a lot of them are working hard to make sure that they're integrating strategies both uh, qualitative data collection through store staff or quantitative data collection through through sensors, POS systems, etc., to understand the attribution of physical to the overall uh, brand. And understanding that consumers more and more are interacting across many channels on their phone, on their desktop. And, and so understanding, okay, how do I unlock super consumers or how do I, you know, improve my relationship and, 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 and strengthen brand loyalty with my customers by having a physical location? And then what, what does that do? So are you seeing the average um, cart size grow? Are you seeing the average consumer who coveted me on, on Instagram now shopping me? Uh, is the average consumer who shopped me before now spending 3x? Are they returning products less often? Are they coming to my website more frequently? So there is a more considered approach to tracking all of that. And so physical, it's not just the sales that happen in the four walls while doors open and understanding the impact that that touch point has across all channels. All right. That is a different perspective. I think the listeners are going to appreciate uh, that little bit right there. I did say there was two things that you said previously. And so the second thing is when these digitally native brands open up a pop-up, what percentage of them are actually going in with the intent to do a pop-up and hopefully turn it into a permanent location? So in the past two years, I would say for our client base, it fluctuated around 30 to 40%. So pretty significant, I think, um, that they're coming with the mindset of if we can prove success, you know, we want to stay in this location or at least find a space within this uh, vicinity um, to sign a long-term lease. The definition of long-term lease is continuing to evolve as well, right? Long-term lease for D2C is not necessarily 20 years. It's probably five years. Um, but, uh, and sometimes it might be a 10 year, but they have a one year out good guy clause or something like that. So there's still that evolution happening, right? And then just the the speed at which these brands are evolving is just so much faster than that traditional retailer, right? So it's like they really have to be mindful of creating space that allows them to be nimble and flex as they grow or change or evolve as a brand. A lot of these VC-backed companies, you know, they have this like fail fast mentality, right? So um, if things work, they they push the gas. If they don't work, they kind of shut it down and they change to something quickly. And if you think about a lot of the DUCs that come to the market, they start as a one product company. Maybe they just sell uh, a pillow or maybe they just sell a mattress and then they evolve to these lifestyle brands. So that's the other tricky part. It's like they test for the viability, but then they have to also think, well, how how are we evolving as a company and how do we make sure we're creating space that can continue to morph as we do? I want to stay on topic, but you have my mind racing and I'm going to digress for a little bit based on what you said there. I think the myth used to be that you opened up online because it was cheaper than having a brick and mortar presence. And as the economics play out and customer acquisition cost rises for pure play e-commerce retailers and shipping starts to 
increase and last mile is so challenging. Are these pure play e-commerce retailers really digging in and saying, you know what, we need to have a physical presence because this making a profit on e-commerce only is really challenging? Sure. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a lot of mindset around that, both with the D2C brands and with with mass brands and retailers as well. So on the D2C side, you're seeing a lot of them when they get to that 10 million 10 million mark revenue and um, is is kind of what's been uh, recently uh, stated is that's the research when they get to about 10 million in sales and they start thinking, okay, we need physical too, because it's getting expensive. The cost acquisition is getting expensive. And so a lot of the times when brands are going to their series A or series B round, part of that round, a good portion of it is to go into physical retail. I think the, the stat last year was something like 70 or 80%. It was a huge portion of VC funding was going towards brands, D2C brands opening physical storefronts. And it really goes back to in order to stand out, you have to create brand loyalty. And so the purpose of physical isn't necessarily transactional for, for many of the D2Cs. It's about creating community. It's about creating testing partnerships. It's about creating something that adds that stickiness. If you, if you look at a lot of the store environments like a Glossier, right, they kind of change the face of how um, cosmetics brands approach physical. It's, it's, it's very Instagrammable and it's high energy and it's about play and Yes, you can purchase the product there, but that's not what led their mindset of how do we design a space. And then on the flip side with mass brands and retailers like a, a Nordstrom or um, or some of their, you know, some of their comps, right? They're also understanding that physical retail can also serve the purpose of, of also being um, kind of a distribution center. So they're doing buy online, pick up in store, they're taking returns, right? All of those things are driving traffic and all of those things actually help with the cost that you're talking about. It's a lot less expensive to take a return in store and put it right back on the floor, yeah. right? Than to deal with mailing those packages back and forth. So, um, so on both sides, you're seeing that mindset around physical retail. Great insights there. I hadn't heard the $10 million number before. It's really interesting to me. It kind of feels like it makes sense to me based on what I know about retail sales. I had heard when digitally native brands and D2C brands uh, go to their Series C, their third round of fundraising, that's typically when they start looking for brick and mortar locations or start to talk about it internally. But uh, a lot easier benchmark is your $10 million number. So uh, really interesting. One last thing before we pivot to the story. A lot of these brands are opening up in really dense markets, very metro markets, urban high street retail in top tier A malls. But they're not going to you know some of these suburbs and middle America and some of these tertiary markets for sure. And, you know, I'm wondering are the consumers in those places ever going to get a chance to physically connect with these brands or is that evolution not going to happen? Yeah, I think so. It's it's still going to be strategic. So it's not going to make sense for all brands all the time. There's, I mean, the, the beauty of e-commerce is, is brands are able to kind of track where traffic's coming from, where sales are yeah. coming from so that they can identify those pockets. You've seen a, a lot of interest in Nashville, in the past year, for example, a lot of brands doing pop-ups there. Goop did a pop-up there, um, for example. And so um, it's about identifying where you're seeing that 
that traffic today, either through socials or through e-commerce data. And I think brands are open to it. And then sometimes it's tying it around events and strategic times of the year um, to go into those markets. So the thing though, is a lot of the times um, when brands do make that strategic approach to go into those markets, they actually do really well because they become like the story of the town, yeah. right? And people are so excited to have that opportunity to shop that brand that, um, you know, you still have to be savvy about what's the right location. I wouldn't go into, you know, off the beaten path streets. I would, you know, go to where the people are. Um, but again, a lot of them have seen success. As you know, I love stories. And you had told me a story before you got on air about Purple Mattress. And why don't you tell the audience about how Purple Mattress got their own stores and you know built a physical presence. Yeah, so we, you know, they they are an interesting company. They differentiate themselves within the mattress category because most that you see in market are foam mattress. So um, they have different technology inside, and um, it's unique. And so for for them, it was really important to have physical touch points for people to lay on the bed and and understand um, what that feels like and and the benefits of it and. They had a showroom um, attached to their office in Utah for for a little bit, um, and they saw the evidence that you know when people came into the showroom they had pretty good conversion rates, and so started identifying markets where they wanted to test physical retail. So um, at the uh, fourth quarter of last year, opened um, four four pop ups um, and one showroom, uh, one the one showrooms in Utah, which is with their new office space. And then four pop-ups, one in Seattle and three in California, and giving them the opportunity to see, you know, what what were people, what questions were people asking, and um, how were conversions changing? You know, they have different levels: one, two, three, and four of the beds, and those also range in pricing. And so, seeing like, well, what does the average conversion look like in store when somebody gets to lay on the bed versus online? And also, are they purchase are they purchasing the pillows? And you know, um, and just testing the market and what's the right square footage. One of the pop-ups was four thousand square feet. Another one is fifteen hundred square feet. So also an opportunity for a lot of that A-B testing. Got it. Makes sense. How did they end up choosing California and Seattle? What was the driver for that? Yeah, just going back to data, right? Uh, understanding where they were seeing strong demand online um, and identifying those as key markets that they wanted to start with. And so that was really the guiding light. That makes a lot of sense. And you mentioned super consumers, which... Totally, I get you would want to continue to penetrate the markets where you had super consumers. One of the things I'm always wondering, though, is do they ever look at white space and say, wow, we don't have any consumers in Minneapolis, for example, just pick Minneapolis and go, let's open up a pop up there for brand recognition. See if we can convert any of these consumers to online consumers to try to extend their consumer base. Does that happen? That happens for sure. It's usually not in the first wave. Um, there's always that question though. Do you think we should go where we're the strongest or do we, do we think we should go where we are looking to acquire uh, a bigger brand awareness? Um, and and most, most of the time, brands start with where they're strong. Um, and then in the second round, then they start kind of branching out into those other markets. I'm curious a little bit about your world a little bit more and as it relates to purple mattress and other brands so 
when do you get involved in the process? So with Purple Mattress, did they call you out two years out, a year out, or did they call you three weeks before the fourth quarter when you opened these stores and said, we need your help? It definitely ranges from client to client. With this particular one, we've been involved for a decent amount of time and we're part of the ideation phase. So the conversation started about a year in advance, um, which is great. We love those opportunities because then we're helping really think through strategy. Um, but there's other instances where a brand has already decided where they want to be. Sometimes they've already selected the location itself and then we're coming in after that point. So it's, it's really, it's really a range. Um, but we are full service. So, um, we like to come in as early as, as the ideation phase. Okay. You come in the ideation phase, you sit down with purple mattress and do they say, we want to be in California and Seattle, or did you guide them to those markets and to tell them about, you know, going to a place where they had super consumers? Um, so it'll be a mix, right? We do still ask, what are your strongest markets? Because they're living in the brand every day. They have access to that data. So we always use that as a starting point. And then it's depending on, you know, what they're looking to achieve and what they consider success to your point before, right? Is it, is it, is it identifying new customers? Is it, is it, um, is it, uh, brand awareness? Is it right? So we're saying, okay, what does your data look like today of where traffic's coming from? What do we consider success? And then also, um, really thinking about their core customer demos too, right? Um, because you know, what is the, what is the average household income? Um, you know, is it, are they, are they families? Are they single? So we're really thinking of all of those parts too, as we start evaluating the market. Um, and we take all of those factors in consideration before we make our recommendations. So it's a mix. Okay. So the ideation phase is over. And so do you start working with them on design, how the, the look and feel of the store, or do you start working on operations? and the, the POS system and the tech in the store, or is this happening simultaneous? Give me a little bit of insight of how you work. It's a bit simultaneous. We're thinking through customer journey and operations as we're thinking of design because they have to they have to live together, right? So it's a it's a collaborative conversation and within our team we have different senior project managers who have different areas of specialty. Um, so for example, one has an operations background, so she'll get involved in that part of the conversation while we're while we're working on that that design aspect, and we start thinking through that. And as that's happening, does Purple Mattress hire a real estate broker, or because your relationships with landlords, you go direct to landlords? How does that work? Um, so we're not brokers, so we will work with real estate brokers or property groups. It depends, depending on the market, if, if they're looking to be in shopping centers or if they're looking to be on Main Street. Um, so in this particular scenario, all of the locations were with mall groups. Um, so we had a conversation with Mace Ridge and Westfield and Brookfield and things like that. So we'll go direct to them. Um, but if we were looking on Main Street, then we would work with a, you know, a broker in that market. Makes total sense. So. Are you part of the conversation when they choose the real estate product that they want to go into, whether it's a street location, a mall, an airport, or whatever it might be? And what's driving that? Put us behind the scenes of what Purple Mattress was thinking here and how they chose these locations. 
We are. We're part of that strategy conversation. I mean, ultimately, they make the decision, of course, but it really depends on market, too. I mean, there's just some markets you're going to go into where you need to be in a shopping center, you know? So if you're going to go, um, if you're in New York City, it's a whole different animal, for example, than if you're going to go into the San Diego market or or the Seattle market, right? So some of it's just market dependent. If you're going to go to the Las Vegas market, you know, you're going to be at a mall, right? So so some of it's driven by that. Um, And then it just depends on the category, too. It's it depends on how well known the brand is. There's a lot of times um, with D to C brands in certain markets, like going into a shopping center is secondary. They rather be on Main Street first because you know they they think they'll be discovered more easily that way, um, or they have concerns if you know they're going to have the right adjacencies or be in the right wing, or you know. So it really I think depends on the category too. Understood. It was probably in the last couple of years because obviously they're. Their marketing is phenomenal. So how did it how did it start? Did they reach out to you or did you call them? We've been really fortunate as a company to have um, a lot of inbound and a lot of referrals. So we, um, you know, had having been a small group, a uh, small company of 10, you know, there wasn't really like a, a customer acquisition budget. We've never done ads. We've never kind of taken that approach. Um, so we've done a lot of focus on, I've done a lot of focus on thought leadership, um, you know, writing my book, The Pop-Up Paradigm and, and contributing to articles and, and, and writing posts on LinkedIn. And, and so a mixture between SEO and and customer referrals is is how we've gotten all of our clients to date. We've been very fortunate for that. Wow. So h- how big is your business grown from a employee perspective when, you know, I decide I'm going to open up Chris's t-shirt shop and I realize I need your services and I call you. What does the team look like? Yeah, it depends on the, the scale of the project, uh, who would be assigned because it depends on for footage, how many locations, how fast we're doing it, things like that. So, but um, I'm always part of ideation and then we have our design team. And so the design team, it depends how many people will depend on like how large scale the design is. And then on the PM side, uh, project management side, it depends. Is there an operational component that we're strategizing around? Because sometimes the brands do do that themselves. Um, and then, you know, how, how extensive is the build out? So you're usually getting a senior PM and an associate PM at minimum. And then it just depends on some of those other factors. Anything else related to the purple mattress story and journey that you were on and are still on that uh, the listeners might want to hear that we haven't touched on today? I mean, it's just a great, uh, another proof point of the importance of physical retail, right? I mean, you know, certain categories, no matter how much growth they're having online, it's intuitive that people still need to touch and feel the product. And if you think about a mattress where you're, you know, and wellness and health and become such a big category and such a big conversation and people really um, valuing the importance of sleep again, there's been so much growth online with it. So, you know, when a space gets very competitive like that online and a product price point is, you know, it's pretty significant. It's a lot of times products of, of, consideration above, you know, $200, like there's some sort of touch feel that's needed. And obviously mattresses fall in that category. And so um, I think it's an example of where it kind of was the, um, it was the inevitable next step that they were to go into physical retail um, because they need to differentiate their story. Um, and, but also just having that touch feel, like having an opportunity for people to um, touch feel the product. And then it's just an opportunity for community building. So 
I think if you kind of take a holistic approach to the value of physical, um, there's a lot that you can see that helps you grow awareness in particular markets um, and and just kind of create a stickier relationship with your customers. Well, that's a great story. Thank you. Great learning about you. It's been truly my pleasure. Why don't you tell everyone about your book? Um, sure. So the book's called The Pop-Up Paradigm, How Brands Build a Human Connection in a Digital Age. Um, I wrote the book when um, a couple of years ago, actually. And so I'm always saying like, okay, what's going to be the next one? Because like now it's mainstream pop-up. So what's next in the next 10 years? But I really is kind of um, written as, you know, different purposes, why brands do pop-ups, everything from testing partnerships to new product launches to testing the viability of physical retail shows some examples of brands who've done it well. Um, There's a section on, you know, is this the right time for me to do a pop-up? Things that you should ask yourself. Um, And just, and also talking about technology and the integration of tech, retail tech and store and where we think that's going. And some of it's come to fruition since I wrote the book, but it's also still evolving. I think as much as augmented reality and virtual reality and RFID is at the market, there's still a lot of evolution to go. All that stuff's going to happen. It's just a little early. That's all. Where can people find the book? Um, on Amazon and dot uh, com and BarnesandNobles.com, or you can go to our website and there's a, a link there as well. Great. Everyone, all the listeners out there, go buy that book. All right. As you know, the last part of the podcast is called Retail Wisdom. We talked about what it was already. So here we go. Question one. Best piece of commercial real estate advice for all the listeners out there. Best piece. Um, alignment still matters. I think a lot of people get seduced because a property, you know, it's free. Um, nothing's ever free because your time is money too. So being strategic about the right place to be, where is your customer, what are the right adjacencies, really should be the guiding light for your decision um, over cost in itself. All right. Love that perspective. Question two. Extinct retailer you wish would come back from the dead. Ooh. Ha, ha, ha. Um, I mean, I know they do have one store. But I would like a little bit more FAO Schwartz. It was so fun. I love FAO Schwartz. That's a great answer. Uh, I was also growing up a big fan of the movie Big with Tom Hanks. So great answer. Okay. Last and final question. I'm going to give you a retail product and you're going to give me the retail price. I am on Briggs Riley's website and they have the dispatch messenger briefcase what is the retail price of the briggs riley dispatch messenger briefcase 250 you were very close one of the closer on the show 219 they do have a sale today you can get 30 percent off amazing (laughs) all right melissa this has been great it's been an education so thank you everyone else out there if you're a digitally native brand reach out to melissa and the lioness group if you're just a listener of the show, go buy her book and we'll see everybody soon. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Retail Retold. If you want to share a story about a retail real estate deal you were a part of on our show, please reach out to us. This podcast highlights the stories behind deals from all perspectives. So it doesn't matter if you're a retailer, 
broker, attorney, or an architect. Contact Diane Lee at D-L-E-E at DLCMGMT.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Retail Retold so you don't miss out on next Thursday's episode.